Chapter Two of the Golden Silence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Golden Silence by Alice Muriel and Charles Norris Williamson. Chapter Two. When he had dutifully seen Miss Lorenzi off at the ship leaving her with as many flowers, novels, and sweets as even she could wish. Stephen expected to feel a sense of relief, but somehow, in a subtle way, he was more feverishly wretched than when Margot was near, and while planning to hurry on the marriage, he had been buoyed up with a rather youthful sense of defiance of the world, a hot desire to get everything over. The flatness of the reaction which he felt on finding himself free, at least of Margot's society, was a surprise, and yet Stephen vaguely understood its real meaning. To be free, yet not free, was an aggravation, and besides he did not know what to do or where to go now that old friends and old haunts had lost much of their attraction. Since the announcement of his engagement to Miss Lorenzi, and especially since the famous interview copied in all the papers, he disliked meeting people he knew well, lest they should offer good advice, or let him see that they were dying to do so. If it had been weak to say, Be my wife, if you think I can make you happy, one day when Margot Lorenzi had tearfully confessed her love for him, it would be doubly weak, worse than weak, Stephen thought, to throw her over now. It would look to the world as if he were a coward and it would look to himself the same, which would be more painful in the end. So he could listen to no advice, and he wished to hear none. Fortunately, he was not in love with any other woman. But then, if he had loved somebody else, he would not have made the foolish mistake of saying those unlucky, irrevocable words to Margot. Stephen would have liked to get away from England for a while, but he hardly knew where to look for a haven. Since making a dash through France and Italy, just after leaving Oxford, he had been too busy amusing himself in his own country to find time for any other, with the exception of an occasional run over to Paris. Now, if he stopped in England, it would be difficult to evade officious friends, and soon everybody would be gossiping about his quarrel with Northmoreland. The Duchess was not reticent. Stephen had not yet made up his mind what to do, or whether to do anything at all in his brief interval of freedom, when a letter came to the flat near Albert Gate, where he had shut himself up after the sailing of Margot. The letter was postmarked Algiers, and it was a long time since he had seen the writing on the envelope, but not so long that he had forgotten it. Neville Card, he said to himself as he broke the neat seal which was characteristic of the writer, and he wondered, as he slowly, almost reluctantly unfolded the letter, whether Neville Card had been reminded of him by reading the interview with Margot. Once he and Card had been very good friends, almost inseparable, during one year at Oxford. Stephen had been twenty then, and Neville Card was about twenty-three, and that would make him thirty-two now, and Stephen could hardly imagine what wings would have developed into at thirty-two. They had not met since Stephen's last year at Oxford, for Card had gone to live abroad, 
and if he came back to England sometimes, he had never made any sign of wishing to pick up the old friendship where it had dropped. But here was this letter. Stephen knew that Card had inherited a good deal of money, and a house in Paris, from an uncle or some other near relative, and a common friend had told him that there was also an Arab palace, very ancient and very beautiful, in or near Algiers. Several years had passed since Neville Card's name had been mentioned in his hearing, and lately it had not even echoed in his mind. But now the handwriting and the neat seal on this envelope brought vividly before him the image of his friend, small, slight, boyish in face and figure, with a bright yet dreamy smile and blue-gray eyes which had the look of seeing beautiful things that nobody else could see. Dear Legs, began the letter, Legs being the name which Stephen's skill as a runner, as well as the length of his limbs, had given him in undergraduate days. Dear Legs, I've often thought about you in the last nine years, and hope you've occasionally thought of me, though somehow or other we haven't written. I don't know whether you've traveled much, or whether England has absorbed all your interests. Anyhow, can't you come out here, make me a visit? The longer it is, the more I shall be pleased. This country is interesting, if you don't know it, and fascinating if you do. My place is rather nice, and I should like you to see it. Still better, I should like to see you. Do come if you can, and come soon. I should enjoy showing you my garden at its best. It's one of the things I care for most. But there are other things. Do let me introduce you to them all. You can be as quiet as you wish, if you wish. I'm a quiet sort myself, as you may remember, and North Africa suits me better than London or Paris. I haven't changed for the worse, I hope, and I'm sure you haven't, in any way. You can hardly realize how much pleasure it will give me if you'll say yes to my proposal. Yours as ever, Neville Card, alias Wings. Not a word of the case, though, of course, he must know all about it, even in Algiers. Stephen's gratitude went out to his old friend, and his heart felt warmer because of the letter and the invitation. Many people, even with the best intentions, would have contrived to say the wrong thing in these awkward circumstances. There would have been some veiled allusion to the engagement, either silly, well-meant congratulations and good wishes, or else a stupid hint of advice to get out of a bad business while there was time. But Card wrote as he might have written if there had been no case and no entanglement, and, acting on his first impulse, Stephen telegraphed an acceptance, saying that he would start for Algiers in two or three days. Afterwards, when he had given himself time to think, he did not regret his decision. Indeed, he was glad of it and glad that he had made it so soon. A few weeks ago, a sudden break in his plans would have caused him a great deal of trouble. There would have been dozens of luncheons and dinners to escape from, and twice as many letters to write. But nowadays he had few invitations, and scarcely any letters to write, except those of business, and an occasional line to Margaret. People were willing to be neglected by him, willing to let him alone, for now that he had quarrelled with Northmoreland and the Duchess, and had promised to marry an impossible woman, 
he must be gently but firmly taught to expect little of society in the future. Stephen broke the news to his man that he was going away alone, and though the accomplished Moulton had regrets, they were not as poignant as they would have been some weeks earlier. Most valets, if not all, are human, and have a weakness for a master whose social popularity is as unbounded as his generosity. Moulton's services did not cease until after he had packed Stephen's luggage and seen him off at Victoria. He flattered himself as he left the station with three months' wages in his pocket that he would be missed. But Stephen was surprised at the sense of relief which came as Moulton turned a respectable back and the boat train began to slide out of the station. It was good to be alone, to have loosed his moorings and to be drifting away where no eyes, once kind, would turn from him or turn on him with pity. Out there in Algiers, a town of which he had the vaguest conception, there would be people who read the papers, of course, and people who love to gossip, but Stephen felt a pleasant confidence that Neville Card would know how to protect him from such people. He would not have to meet many strangers. Neville would arrange all that and give him plenty to think about during his weeks of freedom. Algiers seemed a remote place to Stephen, who had loved life at home too passionately to care for foreign travel. Besides, there was always a great deal to do in England at every season of the year and it had been difficult to find a time convenient for getting away. Town engagements began early in the spring and lasted till after cows, when he was keen for Scotland, being a gregarious as well as an idle young man. He was pleased with his own popularity and the number of his invitations for country house visits. He could never accept more than half, but even so he hardly saw London until January and then, if he went abroad at all, there was only time for a few days in Paris, and a fortnight on the Riviera, perhaps, before he found that he must get back. Just after leaving Oxford, before his father's death, he had been to Rome, to Berlin, and Vienna, and returned better satisfied than ever with his own capital. But of course it was different now that the capital was dissatisfied with him. He had chosen the night train and it was not crowded. All the way to Dover he had the compartment to himself, and there was no rush for the boat. It was a night of stars and balmy airs, but after the start the wind freshened, and Stephen walked briskly up and down the deck, shivering slightly at first till his blood warmed. By and by it grew so cold that the deck emptied, save for a half-dozen men with pipes that glowed between turned-up coat-collars and one girl in a blue serge dress, with no other cloak than the jacket that matched her frock. Stephen hardly noticed her at first. But as men buttoned their coats, or went below and she remained, his attention was attracted to the slim figure leaning on the rail. Her face was turned away, looking over the sea where the whirling stars dipped into dark waves that sprang to engulf them. Her elbows rested on the railing, and her chin lay in the cup of her two hands, but her hair, under a blue sailor hat, held down with a veil, hung low in a great looped-up plate, tied with a wide black ribbon, so that Stephen, without wasting much thought upon her, guessed that she must be very young. 
It was red hair, gleaming where the light touched it, and the wind threshed curly tendrils out from the thick clump of the braid, tracing bright threads in intricate lacy lines over her shoulders, like the network of sunlight that plays on the surface of water. Stephen thought of that simile after he had passed the girl once or twice, and thinking of it made him think of the girl herself. He was sure she must be cold in her serge jacket, and wondered why she didn't go below to the ladies' cabin. Also he wondered, even more vaguely, why her people didn't take better care of the child. There must be someone belonging to her on board. At last she turned, not to look at him, but to pace back and forth, as others were pacing. She was in front of Stephen, and he saw only her back, which seemed more girlish than ever, as she walked with a light springing step that might have kept time to some dainty dance music which only she could hear. Her short dress, of hardly more than ankle length, flowed past her slender shape as the black, white frothing waves flowed past the slim prow of the boat, and there was something individual, something distinguished in her gait and the bearing of her head on the young throat. Stephen noticed this rather interesting peculiarity, remarking it more definitely because of the almost mean simplicity of the blue serge dress. It was of provincial cut, and looked as if the wearer might have bought it ready-made in some country town. Her hat, too, was of the sort that is turned out by the thousands and sold at a few shillings for young persons between the ages of twelve and twenty. By and by, when she had walked as far forward as possible, the deck rising under her feet or plunging down, while thin spray wreaths sailed by on the wind, the girl wheeled and had the breeze at her back. It was then Stephen caught his first glimpse of her face, in a full white blaze of electric light, and he had the picture to himself, for by this time nearly everyone else had gone. He had not expected anything wonderful, but it seemed to him in a flash of surprise that this was an amazing beauty. He had never seen such hair or such a complexion. The large eyes gave him no more than a passing glance, but they were so vivid, so full of blue light as they met his, that he had a startled impression of being graciously accosted. It seemed as if the girl had some message to give him, for which he must stop and ask. As soon as they had passed each other, however, that curious, exciting impression was gone, like the vanishing glint on a gull's wing as it dips from sun into shadow. Of course she had not spoken. Of course she had no word to give him. He had seemed to hear her speak, because she was a very vital sort of creature, no doubt, and therefore physically, though unconsciously, magnetic. At their next crossing under the light, she did not look at him at all, and he realized that she was not so extraordinarily beautiful as he had at first thought. The glory of her was more an effect of coloring than anything else, the creamy complexion of a very young girl, whipped to rose and white by the sea-wind, brilliant turquoise-blue eyes under a glitter of wavy red hair. These were the only marvels for the small straight nose was exactly like most pretty girls' noses, and the mouth, though expressive and sweet, with a short upper lip, was not remarkable, unless for its firmness. The next time they passed, 
Stephen granted the girl a certain charm of expression which heightened the effect of beauty. She looked singularly innocent and interested in life, which to Stephen's mood seemed pathetic. He was convinced that he had seen through life and consequently ceased forever to be interested in it. But he admired beauty wherever he saw it, whether in the grace of a breaking wave or the sheen on a girl's bright hair and it amused him faintly to speculate about the young creature with the brilliant eyes and blowing red locks. He decided she was a schoolgirl of sixteen, being taken over to Paris, probably to finish her education there. Her mother or guardian was no doubt prostrate with seasickness, careless for the moment whether the child paraded the deck insufficiently clad, or whether she fell unchaperoned into the sea. Judging by her clothes, her family was poor, and she was perhaps intended for a governess. That was why they were sending her to France. She was to be given every advantage in order to command desirable situations by and by. Stephen felt dimly sorry for the little thing, who looked so radiantly happy now. She was much too pretty to be a governess, or to be obliged to earn her own living in any way. Women were brutes to each other sometimes. He had been finding this out lately. Few would care to bring a flower-like creature of that type into their houses. The girl had trouble before her. He was sure she was going to be a governess. After she had walked for half an hour, she looked round for a sheltered corner and sat down. But the place she had chosen was only comparatively sheltered, and presently Stephen fancied that he saw her shivering with cold. He could not bear this knowing that he had a rug which Moulton had forced upon him to use on board ship, between Marseilles and Algiers. It was in a rolled-up thing which Moulton called a hold-all, along with some sticks and an umbrella, Stephen believed, and the rolled-up thing was on deck with other hand-luggage. "'Will you let me lend you a rug?' he asked, in the tone of a benevolent uncle addressing a child. "'I have one close by, and it's rather cold when you don't walk.' "'Thank you very much,' said the girl. "'I should like it, if it won't be too much trouble to you.' She spoke simply, and had a pretty voice. But it was an American voice. Stephen was surprised, because to find that she was an American upset his theories. He had never heard of American girls coming over to Paris with the object of training to be governesses. He went away and found the rug, returning with it in two or three minutes. The girl thanked him again, getting up and wrapping the dark, soft thing round her shoulders and body, as if it had been a big shawl. Then she sat down once more with a comfortable little sigh. "'That does feel good,' she exclaimed. "'I was cold.' "'I think you would have been wiser to stop in the ladies' cabin,' said Stephen, still with the somewhat patronizing air of the older person. "'I like lots of air,' explained the girl, "'and it doesn't do me any harm to be cold.' "'How about getting a chill?' inquired Stephen. "'Oh, I never have such things. They don't exist. At least they don't unless one encourages them,' she replied. He smiled, rather interested and pleased to linger, since she evidently understood that he was using no arts to scrape an acquaintance. "'That sounds like Christian science,' he ventured. "'I don't know that it's any kind of science,' said she. "'Nobody ever talked to me about it. Only if you're not afraid of things—' They can't hurt you, can they? Perhaps not. I suppose you mean you needn't let yourself feel them. There's something in the idea, be callous as an alligator, 
and nothing can hit you. Oh, I didn't mean that at all. I'd hate to be callous, she objected. We couldn't enjoy things if we were callous. Stephen, on the point of saying something bitter, stopped in time, knowing that his words would have been not only stupid, but obvious, which was worse. It is good to be young, he remarked instead. Yes, but I'm glad to be grown up at last, said the girl, and Stephen would not let himself laugh. I know how you feel, he answered. I used to feel like that, too. Don't you now? Not always. I've had plenty of time to get tired of being grown up. Maybe you've been a soldier and have seen sad things, she suggested. I was thinking when I first saw you that you looked like a soldier. I wish I had been. Unfortunately, I was too disgustingly young when our only war of my day was on. I mean the sort of war one could volunteer for. In South Africa? Yes, you were a baby in that remote time. Oh, no, I wasn't. I'm eighteen now, going on nineteen. I was in Paris then with my stepmother and my sister. We used to hear talk about the war, though we knew hardly any English people. So Paris won't be a new experience to you, said Stephen, disappointed that he had been mistaken in all of his surmises. I went back to America before I was nine, and I've been there ever since, till a few weeks ago. Oh, see, there are the lights of France. I can't help being excited. Yes, we'll be in very soon, in about ten minutes. I am glad. I'd better go below and make my hair tidy. Thank you ever so much for helping me to be comfortable. She jumped up, unrolled herself, and began to fold the rug neatly. Stephen would have taken it from her and bundled it together anyhow, but she would not let him do that. I like folded things, she said. It's nice to see them come straight, and I enjoy it more because the wind doesn't want me to do it. To succeed in spite of something is a kind of little triumph and seems like a sign. Good-bye, and thank you once more. Good-bye, said Stephen, and added to himself that he would not soon again see so pretty a child as fresh, as frank, or as innocent. He had known several delightful American girls, but never one like this. She was a new type to him, and more interesting, perhaps because she was simple and even provincial. He was in a state of mind to glorify women who were entirely unsophisticated. He did not see the girl getting into the train at Calais, although he looked for her, feeling some curiosity as to the stepmother and the sister, whom he had imagined prostrate in the ladies' cabin. By the time he had arrived at Paris, he felt sleepy and dull after an aggravating doze or two on the way, and had almost forgotten the red-haired child with the vivid blue eyes, until, to his astonishment, he saw her alone with a douanier over two great boxes for one of which there seemed to be no key. Those selfish people of hers have left her to do all the work, he said to himself indignantly, and as she appeared to be having some difficulty with the official, he went to ask if he could help. Thank you, it's all right now, she said. The key of my biggest box is mislaid, but luckily I've got the man to believe me when I say there's nothing in it except clothes just the same as in the other. Still, it would be very, very kind if you wouldn't mind seeing me to a cab, that is, if it's no bother. Stephen assured her that he would be delighted. Have your people engaged the cab already, he wanted to know, or are they waiting in this room for you? I haven't any people, she answered. I'm all by myself. 
This was another surprise, and it was as much as Stephen could do not to blame her family audibly, for allowing the child to travel alone at night, too. The thing seemed monstrous. He took her into the courtyard where the cab stood and engaged two, one for the girl and one for her large luggage. You have rooms already taken at a hotel, I hope, he asked. I'm going to a boarding house. A pension, I mean, explained the girl. But it's all right. They know I'm coming. I do thank you for everything. Seated in the cab, she held out her hand in a glove, which had been cleaned, and showed mended fingers. Stephen shook the small hand gravely, and for the second time they bade each other good-bye. In the cold gray light of a rainy dawn, which would have suited few women as a background, especially after a night's journey, the girl's face looked pearly, and Stephen saw that her lashes, darker at the roots, were bright golden at the turned-up ends. It seemed to him that this pretty child, alone in the grayness and rain of the big foreign city, was like a spring flower thrown carelessly into a river to float with a stream. He felt an impulse of protection, and it went against his instincts to let her drive about Paris unprotected while night had hardly yielded to morning. But he could not offer to go with her. He was interested, as any man of flesh and blood must be interested, in the fate of an innocent and charming girl left to take care of herself, and entirely unfitted for the task. Yet she seemed happy and self-confident, and he had no right, even if he wished, to disturb her mind. He was going away without another word after the good-bye, but on second thoughts felt that he might ask if she had friends in Paris. Not exactly friends, but people who would look after me and be kind, I'm sure, she answered. Thank you for taking an interest. Will you tell the man to go to 278A? Rue Washington, and the other cab to follow. Stephen obeyed, and as she drove away, the girl looked back, smiling at him her sweet and childlike smile. End of chapter 2